Hey, thank you guys for being here. So here's the deal. So uh, the message that we're on specifically uh, today, we've been going through the book of Acts and we've gotten to a group called the Bereans. You just need to know uh, some of the messages I preach to you are meant to be kind of the the rah-rah, pump you up so that you can leave motivated. This is one of those that I would consider to be more teaching oriented. This is a great lesson to take notes on. And for some of you uh, who have had to make a decision on what church to go to, uh, if you've had to make a decision on uh, attending a church that's not the one that you grew up in, which if you're here, the church is only seven years old. So unless you're my daughter Harper, you didn't really grow up here. All right. Uh, And so we moved here when she was two months old. Uh, So just know uh, if that's your story, this is a great lesson for you today. Some of you have got Christian podcasts. You've got Christian uh, Christian uh, uh, pastors or authors that you love to uh, to read or to again take in information from. This is a lesson specifically on how to figure out uh, if what's being taught is truly of God. And so, great lesson to take notes on today. We don't skip passages here at Waterfront. Uh, and so, again, if you're here hearing this message, it was definitely for you today. All right. So, open your Bibles, Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 10. Uh, and uh, as we get ready for that, uh, the uh, lead-in for this passage actually is that uh, Paul had been hurt uh, in the church of Thessalonica. He'd been hurt by the uh, Jewish synagogue there and basically chased out of town. Uh, And then what we're going to find in Acts 17, when he goes to Berea, he goes right back uh, to uh, ministering uh, to the Jewish synagogue there in Berea, even though he's been hurt by the Jewish synagogue uh, there in uh, Thessalonica. So our study today starts with this question. Have you ever been hurt by someone and you were tempted to distrust an entire group because of that? Let me ask that again. Have you ever been hurt by someone and you were tempted to distrust an entire group because of that? Some of you are like, yep, in a dating relationship with a man or a woman, I don't, I did completely distrust the opposite sex. Uh, I completely distrust men or women uh, from that point forward. Just for the record, one bad experience does not denote that you need to distrust half the planet, all right? Again, one person uh, and a bad experience with one is not your experience with all people. Uh, one, uh, one group, again, that prejudice that you develop is something that the enemy loves to exploit. Uh, we've got to be open uh, to the Lord obviously doing something new and not distrusting an entire group just because we've been hurt by one person a part of a specific group. That's the lead-in for the whole passage. I told you I watched way too much football yesterday, and I've got a story I'd like to tell you about a fight that I got into. Just for the record, I've only been in one actual fight uh, in my entire life, but many of you will know if you do it well, you don't have to do it often. And so uh, anyway, one fight I've been in my entire life uh, happened back when I was in the eighth grade, all right? You got to go all the way back to middle school for me to get to that fight. Uh, I played weak side linebacker uh, for uh, for our team, and uh, um, we uh, had a pretty good team that year, but there was one game in particular we were up 6-0, to zero, and on the last play of the game, uh, the uh, running back for the other team was a team called O.L. Slayton Middle School. Uh, O.L. Slayton's running back was a guy named Eric Luna, still one of the finest running backs I've ever seen in my whole life. Eric took the ball on the last play of the game, 97 yards to score a touchdown on the last play. The coach took out the first string and put in the second string for the last play, and I swear every different player touched him on the way in. Scores the ball. It was, it was crazy. Scored at the end. We we block the extra point, so it's a 6-6 tie uh, that that game finishes. Well, this never happened, but uh, this uh, what was about to happen never happened before. Uh, we had an open bye week, and so did that team, and our coaches got together and said the unthinkable. They said, let's get together and play one more game 
so that we don't have to finish the season with a six, six, uh, six to six tie between the two teams. And so we got together. You never got to play a team twice uh, before the playoffs during the season, but this year we did. And so we lined up. I'm playing weak side linebacker. The running back's a kid named Eric Luna. So fast. And uh, Eric's there in the backfield. Well, again, if you know football, the linebacker tries to tackle uh, the running back. Well, sure enough, on the very first series, Eric's trying to come up the middle. And when he does, I hit him in the middle and tackle him and kind of push him down to the ground. But it was just, it was a fair hit. And and again, nothing behind it. Well, Eric pops up and he goes, what did you say? Well, I didn't say anything. (laughs) Apparently we found out later, this was something Eric used to do to kind of psych himself out. And he would also psych the rest of the team out. And so he'd go, what'd you say? And I'm like, nothing, man, nothing. And he goes, I heard what you said. And I'm like, I didn't say anything. And he was alluding that it was some type of racial slur that had been said to him. I'm the president and the founder of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at my middle school. And I'm telling you, nothing came out of my mouth that day. But it was kind of his shtick to get everybody stirred up. And so he goes, I heard what you said. He walks back to the huddle, and the worst thing that could have happened, happened. We were 6-6 tie the week before. We ran away with the game, and we won 28 seven. So first touchdown happens and we go up seven to zero. I'm on the I'm on the extra point team and I line up in my spot to block for the extra point and Eric slides the group over and lines up on me and during the extra point grabs my shoulder pads and starts kicking me in the stomach. Well he is about 75 pounds lighter than I am. I'm a linebacker. He's a running back and so I grabbed him my shoulder pads and I just threw him off of me. That was it. And so ref throws the flag. They saw that he had kicked me in the stomach to start it and I was just trying to get away from him they get a 15 yard penalty well next thing happens we score again go up 14 to 0 and at that point um, Eric is really upset same thing again I don't know why the coaches didn't pull me before this but we line up on extra point Eric scoots the guy over lines up right on top of me grabs my shoulder pads starts kicking me in the stomach and what do I do I just pick him up throw him across the field one more time well after that the coach is like you need to sit on the bench for the rest of the game it's not safe for you out there okay it's not good for the rest of the team and then we end up winning like i said 28 to 7 at the end of the game because it's middle school football we will see each other again in the high five line on your way to head back to the bus and so as we're lining up to go our coach had a rule that we didn't fully understand back in the day until this particular game the rule was that you always kept your shoulder pads and your helmet on until you got on the bus that you kept them on through the whole end of the game. Now, just for the record, it probably was so you didn't leave your shoulder pads or your helmet. You know what I mean? It's probably a bit more you know, utilitarian than it was this other deal. But anyway, the idea was you kept them on. Well, this particular day, we're lining up and shaking hands, and there is Eric. Eric's, got, uh, Eric's taking his helmet off and his shoulder pads off, and he walks up to me, and he's walking like this, swaying back and forth. He's at the end. He's got the whole team behind him on the other side, too. He walks up to me, and he goes, I heard what you said. And I said, dude, I didn't say anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, then I've got my shoulder pads and helmet on. All of a sudden, Eric jumps on me, and he's trying to punch me, but I have my helmet on, so he's like trying to force his fist through the face mask. And I'm not really proud of this, but I am kind of proud of it. And so anyway, here's what happened. He's on me, and I remember I pulled him around, and I headbutted him with my face mask. It's not 
my shining moment, all right? But again, he just kept trying to hurt me. And so anyway, headbutt him. It staggers him. And then we have a running back. Our fullback was a kid by the name of Tyler Church, ironically. His last name was Church. And Tyler, at full speed, boom, hits the kid, tackles him to the ground. And then all of a sudden, both teams start to fight. We start an eighth grade team brawl right there in the middle of it. And I can still vividly remember, we had this campus police officer. You know, it was the Lubbock Independent School District police officer that was there for the game. He probably weighed 600 pounds. And I remember, he's coming across trying to break it up while these kids are all fighting. I mean, it was awful. This will teach you a little bit about your pastor's heart, too. We finally get broken up. We get on the bus, and I'm crying on the bus, okay? And I remember the head football coach was like, Randalls, you won the fight. Why are you crying? And I was like, I don't know, coach. So here's the deal. Bad experience with that guy. Bad experience. But if you know anything about middle school football, we ended up funneling to the same high school. And so here's the deal. Ninth grade ball. We end up meeting together a year later, and the two teams are coming together to form one team. I had had such a bad experience. O.L. Slayton was the name of the school. We started to refer to them as the O'Hell Satans. That was not a godly thing to do. <laughs> we get together on the same team. I was so nervous. I remember I even talked to spiritual mentors and asked what I should do. They said, just go shake his hand. They said, I don't think he even remembers who you are. I walk up to this kid. I'm shaking. I stick up my hand and I go, can we be teammates now? And he goes, who are you? <laughs> I said, doesn't matter. <laughs> Can I tell you something else that's interesting? And he may be watching right now. On that team for O.L. Slayton was a man who would end up being a groomsman in my wedding and is one who I call my best friend in the entire world next to Autumn. A guy named Cleo Andrews. Cleo was the fullback on their team. He and I would end up athletes together, and now we get to serve in ministry uh, in different parts of the country together. Cleo would end up living with my family for a time uh, while he was finishing up college. He's truly as close to a brother as I have beyond blood on this planet. If I had allowed my prejudice to continue to govern the way that I was interacting, I would have missed out on incredible teammates, great relationships, and I would have missed out on something very beautiful that the Lord had on the other side. Some of you may have needed to hear that today. Read with me, if you will, Acts 17, verse 10, and I want you to hear the tones of this story. Paul had been wronged by what happened in Thessalonica by this group of Jews, but that did not prejudice him against his people. Look at what happens in verse 10. It says, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, and on arriving there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Underline and highlight, they went into the Jewish synagogue and underline as soon as it was night. I love this. He'd been persecuted and run out of town by the Jews in Thessalonica, but instead of being prejudiced against it or saying, I'm going to change the methods and the way that I do ministry, instead, he goes straight to the synagogue there in Berea and allows himself to have a very short memory, a very short prejudice uh, when it came to sharing the gospel message. If you're taking notes, write this down. When we courage put aside our prejudice for the sake of the gospel. We facilitate the opportunity to gain rich perspective and partnership. Let me say that again. When we courageously put aside our prejudice for the sake of the gospel, we facilitate the opportunity to gain rich perspective and partnership. Paul understood that one person is not all people. One bad experience is not a bad experience with all people, unless they're the Texas A&M Aggies, Robbie. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I just had to lay that 
out there. I'll have to say, here's the deal. One bad experience does not denote bad for all time. And we believers in Jesus Christ should be in the business of redemption. Amen? We've got to remember, our prejudice can keep us from rich partnership and perspective when it comes to the sake of the gospel. So it's with that as the lead-in. Paul fights through his prejudice. He shows up in Berea with an open mind and an open heart, and then God is going to teach him something so powerfully through the Bereans that we will truly hold on to it to this day. It addresses this question. Are you ready? How should a disciple approach someone's preaching or teaching? The way that the Bereans approach Paul is the exact way that every one of us should approach a spiritual change that takes place in our life, whether it be through a set of sermons that we listen to, whether it be through books that we read by Christian authors, a podcast that we listen to. And then for some of you, uh, my prayer is that you would be at Waterfront Church for a very long time. But church searching, when you're trying to find a place where you plug in for you men and women in the military, a church search is a real issue that you have to navigate. How do you know if the place that you're visiting is the place that God wants you to be? The Bereans are going to lay out for us perfectly how that works out. Or for some of you, even just spiritual conversations that you have with people at work, with people in your community, with people in your family. How should a disciple approach someone's preaching or teaching? Are you ready? Let's look at how the Bereans do that in Acts 17, verse 11. It says, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. I don't more noble character than the Thessalonians. The idea here is they did it the right way. It says, For they received the message, this is the gospel message, with great eagerness. Underline and highlight with great eagerness, and we're going to stop right there. There are multiple points on this, and it's not one for one. It's three for three on this that you need to do, but we're going to tackle each one piece by piece. The first thing it says is a spiritual conversation that they receive comes in what? It comes in, number one, with eagerness. The idea of with eagerness is not with fear or with intense skepticism. Now, we're going to talk through this in just a minute, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that you just believe anything that comes down the pipe. But it does mean specifically that when someone comes up and wants to have a spiritual conversation with you, listen to me. Scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. There are some of you in this room and you don't receive any spiritual conversation with eagerness because you've been trained that intense skepticism and fear is how you should respond. Sometimes it's how you've been taught, and then sometimes you don't receive it with eagerness because you had a bad experience with someone else when you had a spiritual discussion with them. That doesn't mean you believe everything that comes out of another person's mouth. But it does mean that you don't shy away from the discussion. Receive it with eagerness. I can tell you for me, fear crept up because when, I, when I, the students at the school that I went to found out I was a Christian, I became the hub for spiritually disgruntled conversation. If someone had a bad experience or if they had a question theologically, if they find out you're a Christian, some of you have this experience at your job or your school that you're at right now, they know you're a Christian, so they funnel all those negative questions and negative experiences to you. I'm sitting in the lunchroom when I was in the eighth grade, and I remember a kid came up, sat at the table, he goes, I heard you're a Christian. I said, yes, I am. And then he says this, do you really believe there's a God? Now, at that point, it was the first time I can truly remember anybody asking me that question. And I didn't just say yes. I said yes, and then all of a sudden, I felt like I had to justify that yes with a big, long, drawn-out story about my life. 
And all of a sudden it was, well, you got to understand, I grew up in a Christian home. And uh, my parents, they also grew up in a Christian home. And really, America is a Judeo-Christian society. And then all of a sudden, it's this big, long, 10-minute answer to where the kid scratched his head and he was like, you don't really sound like you even know what you're talking about. I remember after that, I was so afraid. He'd ask me a simple question, do I believe there's a God? And all of a sudden, there was fear. I didn't receive those questions with eagerness. I received them with fear and intense skepticism. Why are you asking me that question? Why do you want to know? What's your angle? What's your motive in that question? Listen to me. Went and met with a youth intern at our church at the time. He said, you okay, Zach? I said, well, somebody asked a question that really shook my faith. He goes, what was the question? I said, he asked me if I believed there was a God. And he was like, that shook your faith? (laughs) He said, why? And I was like, well, I told him the story of my life. I told him my testimony, but he just didn't want to receive it or listen to it. He came up and he goes, you want to know the answer to that question? It's Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that men are without excuse. The apostle Paul When someone says to him, do you really believe there's a God? The Apostle Paul says, do you really believe there's not? Do you really believe that it was a cosmic roll of the dice that came up snake eyes a billion times in a row that accidentally wrote the laws of physics, that accidentally set the universe in motion? It takes a whole lot of faith to believe that, just as much as there was intelligent design to put it together. Listen to me. When someone asks you a question and tries to engage spiritual conversation, receive it, with eagerness. Not because you're going to know what the answer is to every question, but because for their edification and for yours, God has brought you across one another's path so that you can sharpen one another. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? You cannot truly grow in your faith without talking about it or studying Scripture. Let me say that again. You cannot truly grow in your faith without talking about it or studying scripture. So what do you do when someone asks you a question that you don't know the answer to? I want you to memorize this statement. I don't know, but I'm going to find out. That's one of the most powerful things a believer in Jesus Christ can say when someone throws you a curveball you weren't ready to hit. I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And then within 24 hours, you call a spiritual mentor, you reach out to the church, you talk to somebody in your life that you trust spiritually, you do the research yourself into the commentaries, and you find an answer to that question because I promise you it's in Scripture to answer that question. You need it for your spiritual health just as much as they need it for their spiritual health. Find the answer. On the second side, with eagerness does not just mean when you're having conversation with someone about spiritual matters. With eagerness also means for those of you who grew up in church and have been around church for a long time and been around church tradition for a real long time, that you embrace the concept that through the pandemic we tried to embrace. We are married to the message, but not the methods. The methods are going to change in the way the gospel is presented. You think the way that we're leading worship up here is the same way that they did 2,000 years ago? In many ways, the message is exactly the same, but the methods change just a bit. They didn't have microphones back then. In fact, they barely had megaphones back in those days. It would have looked very different, and yet the message, the core, must remain exactly the same. So how do you do this? I guarantee you, because our church is seven years old, there's a huge portion of you that have come to Waterfront and you came here after having a steep tradition in a ministry that was very different than this one. The average age at Waterfront is 31 years old. 
Now, here's the deal. If you've come here and you were developed and discipled somewhere else, there are probably some aspects to Waterfront that rub you just a little bit the wrong way. It doesn't look like your home church looked like. It doesn't look like what you grew up in. It's a little bit different. The message is what matters, and the methods are going to change. If you receive the message with skepticism and your arms crossed in the way that it's being presented because it doesn't look like your home church, then you're going to miss out on the power of what God is doing in this specific generation. I got to work for more than a decade in student ministry. One of the years that I was doing that, I worked at a church that had been founded in the 1860s. It was an old church, very, very conservative theologically and in the way that they presented the gospel. And I'll never forget, I did the unthinkable. We wanted to bring in a rapper to the student ministry. <laughs> that had never happened before. Now here's the deal. It wasn't just any rapper, for those of you who know Christian music. This was back, and this was a tall, skinny kid who we heard had spectacular theology named Lecrae. If you ever heard Lecrae before? Lecrae might be the most famous Christian rapper that there is, which Christian rapper is kind of a funny term anyway, but uh, all that to say. Lecrae was the best of the best. At the time, he was just a kid. Um, just so you know, it was like 300 bucks to bring him in. Now it would cost you $50,000 to get him for one day. So here's the deal. All that to say, we booked Lecrae. We'd heard that he had incredible theology. Every experience we'd have with him was awesome. For those of you who know Lecrae, like a month before this show that he did at our church, he had just released an album called Jesus Music, kind of a famous album that he put out. So it's right there before he blew up and, and, and got big. All that to say, I got one youth worker that comes up to me and is like, I don't know how I feel about this. And without articulating it as well as I can now as an older man, I think I was 25 at the time, um, I remember saying, basically, we're married to the message, not the methods. This is going to reach the kids. I truly believe this is what we're supposed to do. So the night of the concert comes up. This particular youth worker wears a three-piece suit to the rap concert. <laughs> kids are at the front. Lecrae still lays, I still can vividly remember, he preached Colossians chapter 1, talked about considering Jesus in every aspect of our lives. It was masterful in the way that he put it together. He even walks through the Greek uh, in this, can you imagine Greek being poured out at a rap concert? It was amazing to listen to him. Three songs go by, and that youth worker at the back in the suit has her arms crossed as they look on. And all of a sudden, he turns, makes eye contact with me, and starts to walk just like this. And I'm like, oh, no. I'm about to get ripped to pieces. I'm about to be in real trouble. Sometimes you've got to give people more credit. He walks up, and he puts his arm around me, and he goes, this is one of the finest presentations of the gospel I've ever heard. He said, we've got to make sure he gets around our kids more often. If that was the case, I needed more money. All right, anyway, all that to say. <laughs> now listen to me. Receive the gospel with eagerness. The message, and we're going to talk about that heavily in just a minute. The message, we are married to the message, and it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? But the methods, it's going to look different than you grew up in. And to reach Gen Z, we're going to have to do it in a little bit different way than we did in the past. It doesn't mean we compromise on the important things. But the methods, the methods change from time to time. It begs the question, are you ready for this? In matters of faith, are you constantly standing at a distance with your arms crossed? I'll say that again. In matters of faith, are you constantly standing at a distance with your arms crossed? It says the Bereans received it with eagerness. They wanted it to grow in their faith. 
why do we not want to grow? Because a lot of times, it's not necessarily that you don't want to grow. It's just that you want to be left alone. You just want them to leave you alone. We were not called to be left alone. We were called to be a light shining in the darkness. Amen? Now look at Acts chapter 17, and let's look at the full verse, verse 11. You ready? It says, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness, but right here just as important. Are you ready? And they examined the Scriptures every day. Underline, and they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now stop right there for just a minute, and I want you to consider what we know about Paul. Paul might have been the finest theologian in the history of theology next to Jesus. Jesus himself. Paul's systematic theology is second to none. It's the systematic theology that we utilize uh, and that we dissect to this day. And it says that they tested everything that that great theologian, that that man of great respect, that that person who was brilliant in intellect, theologically and personally, that they tested everything against the word of Almighty God. Why? Because God's word is unchanging. If you're taking notes, write this down. How should a disciple approach someone's preaching or teaching? Number one is with eagerness and number two is always alongside scripture always alongside scripture there are certain things that we receive as being a tradition that has passed down to us but if it's not founded in scripture then it is not something that will last into eternity all tradition is not bad but if we treat it with the same level that we do scripture itself that's when we end up perverting the faith Everything must be tested alongside Scripture. And I love this. It says that they examine the Scriptures, what? Every day. Every day. Now, we know that Paul was probably teaching almost every day. But the picture here in this passage is that they had a personal study and personal relationship with Almighty God themselves. That's the goal for the church. When you approach someone else's preaching or teaching, do so with eagerness instead of fear and skepticism. But most importantly, you measure every word that even comes out of my mouth. You measure it against Scripture. And I say even, especially, that comes out of my mouth. You measure it against Scripture in all things. Famous quote, three words that came from Suzanne Massey and Ronald Reagan on the issue of nuclear disarmament. Do you remember? Trust but verify. Write that down. Trust but verify. That is the picture of with eagerness, but always alongside Scripture. Come into it going, I have an open mind. I want to hear what you have to say, but everything gets measured against this. Alec, you freshman at Virginia Tech. Trust but verify. Take in new teaching, but make sure it is always and forever measured alongside Scripture. It is the truth, and it will always be the truth yesterday, today, and forever. You ever been at a baseball game before? This happens a lot when Juan Soto gets up to bat. Okay, Juan Soto, I'm telling you, love Juan Soto. He's my favorite player on our team right now. Uh, he's so much fun, and the way he kind of does the, the wiggle and stuff, he's just a lot of fun to watch, right? But because he's our big power hitter, you ever been at the game? He knocks a whole bunch of home runs. He gets walked all the time right now. Uh, but Juan Soto, if he hits a fly ball, what does everybody do? He hits that fly ball, and they go, ah! oh, you ever had that happen before? It goes up, it goes high high, but it's caught by the center fielder. It's caught by the left fielder. And I'm telling you, everybody, huh? Oh, right? Don't miss this. There's a lot of theology out there right now that does not measure up to God's word. And there is a roar of, yeah, right? Don't get caught up 
in cheering for a fly ball like it's a home run. It ain't a home run till it goes over the fence. Do you hear me? It ain't a home run until it goes over the fence. And theologically, there have been a whole lot of teachers out there that will push an agenda, that will push something that fits with the culture, that will push something that fits with democracy. And the truth is, our faith is a theocracy. It is under God. It is not up for a vote. Amen? Because of that, we go to God's word. It says every day they tested what they'd been taught against scripture to find out if it was the truth or if it was, again, a swaying of the culture. Trust, but verify. Save your spot there in Acts 17 and flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Remember, Paul has just left the church at Thessalonica I always have felt like there was a connection here. He writes to the church in 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 19. He writes to them, and it almost sounds like he's talking specifically about what he's experienced in Berea. Here's what he says. Do not put out, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. There's with eagerness right there. Again, again, he says right there, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Receive it with eagerness. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, with eagerness. Take it in. But he follows it up with 21. Test everything and hold on to the good. He's laying out there for Thessalonica what he's just learned in Berea. Receive it with eagerness. Have a spiritual conversation because you can grow deeply in your faith. And yet, test everything and hold on to the good. For some of you, what you need to hear on that is there are teachers that pour into you, but if a portion of their teaching is not biblical, test it, and then don't just discard that person because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Test everything, and then hold on to what's biblical. When we do that, you'll end up not associating yourself with an organization or a ministry that ends up a fly ball instead of a home run. Is that a good word? It begs the question. Thank you, Kim. I missed you. All right? <laughs> you ready? It begs the question. Let's be honest. Have you embraced teaching that has no biblical foundation? Have you embraced teaching that has no biblical foundation? I want to encourage you. Always alongside Scripture. Measure it. Trust, but verify. When we do that, we don't end up cheering for a fly ball. Now let's flip back over to Acts chapter 17 and let's read verses 12 through 15 and we'll call it a day today. The Bereans also do something else that's pretty powerful. They receive the word with eagerness. They examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul, this great theologian, said was true. But look at the way they treat Paul here at the end. It says, Many of the Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Watch what the Bereans do here to Paul. This is beautiful. It says the brothers immediately, underlined immediately, sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed there at Berea. The men who escorted Paul, underlined escorted Paul, brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Stop right there for just a minute. This is beautiful. Don't miss this. After receiving the message with eagerness, after spending time with Paul and dissecting his words back and forth, they revered Paul so deeply, but did not hold on to him like he himself was God. 
They took care of him as their pastor, but they made sure that the mission continued beyond him. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? How should a disciple approach someone's preaching or teaching? Number one, with eagerness. Number two, always alongside scripture. And number three, with reverence for the messenger, but dependence on God. Let me say that again. With reverence for the messenger, but dependence on God. Don't miss out that here in the passage, it says that immediately, as soon as they found out there was a a, a hit on Paul's life, basically, they then take him to the coast. They wanted to protect him from the pain that he could feel from uh, from this group of Thessalonians. And then it says that they don't just take him, they don't just send him away, but they escort him that way. They take care of him with great reverence. And yet their faith was not dependent upon Paul. It was dependent on the only one our faith can be dependent on, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? The scripture's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Great reverence has to be given to the messenger. But if your dependence is on anyone else but God, you will be left wanting. I've said this before, and I'll say it to you again. There's a school of thought that the judgment seat at the end is like a courtroom setting. And the idea is that if the Lord ever asks you, after showing you your sin that you've committed throughout the ages, throughout your lifetime, and said, why should I let you into heaven? There is one answer to that. You go stand behind Jesus. That's it. Can I tell you what you can't do? That you can't go, well, Pastor Zach, tell him. I went to Waterfront. Pastor Zach, tell him. I made a decision. Pastor Zach, tell him. You baptized me. That's one of the greatest fears I have as a pastor is that at the end of the days that you would show up and say, Zach, vouch for me. I can't vouch for nobody. I got to go stand behind Jesus too. Now just for the record, have reverence for the messenger because it is hard to be a pastor. It is hard to stand up and proclaim the word of God. It is an easy six hours of in-depth study every single lesson that I teach out here, every time. And it used to take 12. I mean, I'm telling you, I've taught long enough now that it takes about six hours. And I rip it apart and I pull the Greek together, pull the Hebrew together, do all these different things to try to bring the word of God alive. Listen, have reverence for your messengers, but your faith is not dependent on me. My hope is built on nothing less in Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen? Amen. If you take your notes, write this down. Only Jesus is irreplaceable. Only Jesus is irreplaceable. There's some of you in this room, and here's what I've found. Sometimes you put your faith in a podcast person or in a Christian author But the real struggle with this one is those of you who are raised in Christian households with really godly parents or with a really godly grandmother or a really godly grandfather. The ones that you saw model the faith every day, the ones that you saw model the faith in the face of difficulty, don't miss this. They would not be proud that your spiritual life died with them. They are the messenger and they deserve your reverence and respect but your faith cannot be dependent upon them. As I had a dad, truly worthy, in my opinion, of reverence and respect. In fact, I can just be honest with you, in the earliest days of my walk with God, there were things that the Lord would say to me through his Holy Spirit that came in the tones of my earthly father because I had heard the word of God preached from him, through him, for so long. When he passed away, 
It shook me. But I began to be able to hear God's voice for real. Say for real, clearly, for the first time. I want to encourage you. When it comes to your relationship with Almighty God, it cannot be dependent on me. It cannot be dependent on your parents. It can't be dependent on a godly grandparent. Reverence for those people is required. But dependence on God, only Jesus is irreplaceable. It's why John writes this. Flip over to John chapter 1 in the Gospel of John. John has to point out from the very beginning of his gospel that John the Baptist was not the Messiah. Look at what he says in John chapter 1. I want to read you verses 6 through 9. John outlines this principle pretty powerfully. He's talking about John the Baptist, not himself, just so you know. He says, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He he lays out from the very beginning. He was sent from God. There is reverence for this man. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. Underline, he himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. It says here very plainly, John says to understand Jesus, you got to understand John the Baptist in the time period. But remember, John was just a dude. John was just a light. He was just, or John was just a messenger, a testimony to the light. Jesus is the one where the power comes from. It begs the final question today. Is your spiritual health dependent on a person other than Jesus? Is your spiritual health dependent on a person other than Jesus? When that question, if it had been posed to me six years ago, I might have had to raise my hand on that one and say, Lord, I think that I've depended on my dad just as much as I've depended on you. When we do that, we can be shaken very easily. Your eternity is built on nothing less than Jesus and your relationship with him. One final verse, and we'll call it a day. Save your spot there. Actually, you don't have to save your spot. We're just doing one more verse. Open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to read you verse 6. Paul says it this way again when he's talking to the church at Corinth. He says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos, that's another preacher, for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying. Are you ready? Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over another. Paul says at the end in this passage, he says, remember, do not go beyond what is written. If you are in a point right now where you are following a teaching that you cannot back up with scripture, heed Paul's warning that we've read in three different passages. Do not go beyond what is written. Traditions can be good. They can push us towards the Lord, but they can't be treated with the same weight as the unchanging word of God. Amen. Hey, thank you for listening today. I told you a little bit more teaching oriented. But now, it's time to focus that spotlight on our own heart and figure out what it means for us moving forward. Let's bow our heads for prayer.